Tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, tonight we're going to finish chapter 1 and a study that I've entitled The Character of the Church Age. It is so monumentally important that we get now what's happening as John continues this amazing vision given to him by the Lord as he's going to explain and illuminate for us the characteristics of this age that you and I now live in. And we call it the church age. We call it the age of grace. It's a time uh, in, a, in the period of the world's history, uh, this age that you and I are now currently living in. Uh, it began just uh, 40 days after the birth of the church there at the, at the very first time that the Lord uh, speaks to the disciples and he's going to send them out. So at the day of Pentecost, it's going to continue right up until the rapture of the church. And that period of time will be followed immediately uh, by the time that we know as Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation of days, that time of Jacob's trouble, that time when God will finally, completely, and totally pour out uh, upon this earth what it's been asking for in its rebellion. And God is going to judge this earth. He has always had a plan to do that. And whether people like to hear about it or not, uh, God is a completely, totally just God, and one day, uh, as, as Jesus steps out of time and into eternity, uh, he is in fact going to come back, and we are going to see catastrophic things on this earth that the world has never seen before. And so it will end at that time, and then after that time, the church age will be over, the church will be gone, it will be in heaven, followed immediately after the rapture of the church, the tribulation, that time uh, where the Lord will pour out His wrath. It will begin uh, with that initial foray of the Antichrist, and as the Antichrist comes on the scene, it will culminate uh, with that great battle, the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of the Lord, and then the establishment of the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so this incredible time that's being spoken about here, and it says in verse 9, here in chapter 1, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and it's not talking about the tribulation, but rather tribulation, just as Jesus said, for in this world you will have tribulation, amen? And probably some of you have been through some today. Uh, if you haven't, you will. As a Christian, that is, that is a sure thing. You're going to go through tribulation. Some people more than others, certainly our brothers and sisters that live in Iran, who named the name of Jesus, going through much more tribulation than we will. Those who uh, call themselves uh, believers in Christ, and they happen to leave, live in, in Turkey, certainly will be going through more tribulation. Those who live in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, our, our brother Pastor Saeed, as he's there in, in urban prison, uh, he is going through tribulation like we don't know. But in this world, you will have tribulation. The church has always faced tribulation. And the kingdom, it goes on to say, in patience of Jesus Christ, praise God for the patience of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because thus far, his patience has strung out the age of grace for 2,000 years. And as we sit here tonight, that time when men can come to faith in Christ, when we can uh, become right with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we now live in that day, we now live in that time, and so because we do, we're able to be saved and we can go to heaven, but that age of grace will not last forever. There is going to come a time when the age of grace will be over. And if you care to think about such things, there literally will be someday the last person who will say yes to Jesus Christ. 
And then that day will come. The church will be raptured home. We'll be gone. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, two will be walking together. One will remain and one will be snatched away by force. The harpazo will happen and, and the Lord will meet his church in the clouds. That day is coming. Maybe soon. And so it is that time that is now going to come into view with the remainder of the book called the book of Revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis, the patience of Jesus Christ. And was on the island that is called Patmos. Notice the two things for which John is imprisoned there. There are two things, exactly two things. And they are the same two things that cause problems all over the world today for the body of Christ. Amen? For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And let me prove that to you. If you go out into the world today and you begin to share about God, pretty much universally anywhere, very few, if anyone, will ever bother you. You can talk about God all day long. Every day, in every way, you can talk about him all you want. But the moment you say, thus says the Lord, you say that no man comes to the Father. You actually believe that John 14, 6 is true, that Jesus said very declaratively that I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. The moment you say that, The entire world goes, that is too exclusive for me. It's always been about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of the remainder of this chapter. Because it's describing these characteristics of the church age. Let's take our time now to prayer. Father, we thank you for this time And we come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that we will receive mercy. Lord, speak to us tonight as your church. Would you empower your word? Would you empower us to receive it, God? Could we tonight leave with a more clearer understanding of this passage? God, would you impart these truths to us? And as we study, Lord, would you set aside any falsehood? Lord, would you take the cares, the worries of this week? Lord, would you put them aside? that we might hear from heaven what you have to say to us tonight as the church. It's in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our King who will come. All God's people said, Amen. And so we have three things that we'll see tonight. And the first thing is that this time that we live in is an age of individual witness. It is an age of individual witness. You see, the church has a corporate witness. Amen? We could say that this church is about the Word of God. It's always been about the Word of God. It has also always been about Jesus Christ, the two things mentioned here by John. But it is up to us as the body of Christ, as individual members, to carry that message into the world. You you see, that message gets to other people, generally speaking, individually, not corporately. And so when we think of this, what we're really thinking of is this, this persecution that's going to come. How are you going to respond to it? What are you going to do when it comes to your house? How are you going to stand for Christ with your children who are being educated by the world? 
in their schools. Amen? Is that not the case? Because if you have children in school, in public school today, they are getting educated about the world. They're not getting educated about Christ. It is your job as the body of Christ to raise your children in Christ. It's not the government's job. It is an age of individual witness. And it's up to you as parents. It's up to us as individuals to make sure that the world sees Jesus. Jesus warned us that we would have trouble, we'd have tribulation. But he also went on to say, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Amen? So it's not an impossibility to stand for Christ. It is a difficulty to stand for Christ. And probably most of you in this room, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of period of time, understand it can be difficult to walk with Christ. Amen? You will be persecuted. People will not like you. They will call you all manner of things falsely for his name's sake. Amen? And so John is making this case to us initially that this that he is saying is true for us also. Those two things that were true for him because he was absolutely uh, imprisoned for just these two things. If he had denied the word of God and if he had denied Jesus Christ, he could have stayed out of prison. And for most of us, that will remain the issue until the Lord takes us home. It is also an age of instinctive worship. Would you see this with me? Pick up in verse 10. For I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. Keep tabs on the trumpet, because we're going to find out who that is that's speaking when that trumpeting voice sounds. Saying, for I am the Alpha and the Omega. You remember what we've already understood about the Lord. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the first letter of the Greek, I am the last letter. I am the first and I am the last. If you don't understand, he's the Alpha and the Omega, you don't speak Greek. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning, I am the end. I was the one who was, I am the one who is, and I am the one who is to come. Amen? I am who I am. That's who we're studying on Sunday nights. Come out and join us. Those statements tie into this title, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so this age of instinctive worship is marked by the entire church age and the entire church age worshiping the one true and the one living God. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos. Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it is those seven churches that we will next focus in on when we begin chapter 2. And we'll take each church individually, one at a time. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. You see, John was in prison. He was in chains. He, He was there captive by the world system, but he was also very much set free by the Spirit. Amen? And that's, that's for us. We live in a human environment. Amen? But we also live in a heavenly environment. Amen? We, we are to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world, right? 
So you can see what he's saying here. He's saying, look, I'm in chains, but I'm actually the freest person that's ever walked the planet Earth because I'm in the Spirit. It's instinctive worship. It's within us. Because of who we are, we worship the Lord. Because of what he's done, we worship the Lord. He he was living that type of life that we should all strive for. And as we look at these things that he begins to describe, all of us exist in these two locations. Every last one of us. We live in and we live for. And we have to be very careful. And I want to really strongly caution you because people err both ways. You can err so far that you're a child of God and you are a citizen of heaven that you become, as D.L. Moody said, no earthly good while you're here on this earth. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. God's left you here to be heavenly minded and earthly good. Amen? We, we are supposed to tell people the good news of the gospel. We're supposed to live our lives so that we are salt and we are light. Amen? So you, you can't let that side go. But you also can't let it go that you don't live here. It, it bugs me to know in Christians that are not as good citizens as unbelievers. It bothers me to no end Christians that don't pay their bills because, hey, I'm going to heaven. I actually had a guy come into my office a couple of years ago, and he told me the reason he was not paying his bills is because he was a citizen of heaven. And I said, no, you're a child of the devil. Because you're giving Jesus a black eye. That's what Satan does. You're helping him out. We need to remember that while we're here on this earth, that we have an obligation to be the very best at everything that we do so that God receives the glory. We should be the absolute most wonderful neighbors. We should be the best employees. People should look at us and say, I want to be a Christian, one of those. Because then the Lord receives the glory for it, amen? And so we must live by the rules that God's given us. And he has placed us here, but our home is there. You can look at it this way. You've kind of got a prepaid vacation plan that's all of eternity. Amen? But it's not good until you take your last breath. So while you're here, you have to do your job and pay your bills, knowing that one day your ticket's been punched, and boom, you're out of here. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen? Hang in there. It's coming. And so we now begin with a ninefold description of the Lord Jesus. And these things are so wonderful when you begin to look at them. Keep those locations straight. Look at what's going on. Notice it says he's speaking to all these churches. He's reminding us. Look, the first thing that we see, verse 12. He is the unknowable one. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He didn't actually see the Lord, did he? He saw seven golden lampstands, and we're going to find out who it is that he actually saw. He didn't see the Lord. Matter of fact, Scripture says no one can see the Lord and live. And so the full glory of the Lord couldn't be revealed to him at that time because he was still in his body of flesh. 
So the Lord reveals himself to us a little bit at a time, amen? He's the unknowable one. We can't know everything about God. The prophet Isaiah understood that. For so high are your ways above my ways that I cannot know them, Isaiah said. I can't figure them out. I can't find them out. They're as high as the heavens are above me, is a paraphrase of that. We, we can't know fully the Lord, but we can know a lot about the Lord. And there in the midst of those seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, verse 13 says, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about with a chest with a golden band. And as we're unveiling Jesus, he, he's, he's saying, man, this is like the noonday sun. It's bright. I, I, I see who this is. Do you remember what Jesus said about himself? I am the light of the world. Amen? And he that walks in me shall not walk in darkness. You see, we can know about him, but we cannot know him fully because he's beyond our understanding. But what we do know is more than sufficient for us to know him in a way to trust him and to believe in him and to serve him. And though he is not fully knowable, he put his life into the church. He, he has given us places like this that we can come and study God's word and people like myself, like the staff here, the pastoral staff that are willing to share God's word with the, with the body and to say, look, this is the truth of who Jesus is. This is what we do know of him. And what we do know of Jesus largely comes from his word. Amen? That's how we know him. His word is truth. This is the same John, by the way, that had placed his hand on Jesus' breast, put his head there. So, so he had experienced Jesus, but he did not fully know everything about him. A second thing. Notice his chest was girded about with a golden band. All of the emotions of the Lord are tightly constrained by his purity. He is completely holy. And so the picture is, is that things that you and I know, our heart being in the center of our chest, sometimes our emotions get away, don't they? Sometimes we do good things for people who we probably should let them suffer through the things that they, they've engaged in. Amen? Uh, they're called your children. And sometimes we wrongly judge other people and we're, you know, we're out there, well, just kill them, God. When we should really be pouring out grace in their life. You see, our emotions get in the way, but the Lord's emotions do not get in the way. He is the unemotional one. He sees everything perfectly. He understands everything perfectly. And he always reacts perfectly without the superfluous, that's a good word, isn't it? Superfluous emotion. Those things which are outside of the norm. Those things which are not normal to us. Those things that we would say, nah, I'm not sure I'd act it. Well, the Lord is perfect in everything that he does. And he's unemotional about it. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love, by the way. But even our, our love gets overly emotional at times, doesn't it? Does again for our children at times. Gets in the way. 
Sometimes we, we love so greatly in our marriages, in, in the life of, as we raise our children, maybe even towards your friends or your family, that we don't actually act correctly because our emotions have gotten in the way. That is not true with Jesus. Everything is constrained by his perfect justice. A third thing, he's the unimpeachable one. Notice verse 14. For his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. The prophet Isaiah saw much the same thing in the very first chapter. Your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow, amen? And they'll be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. The, the Lord in his, in his character cannot be questioned. Sometimes we have people in our lives that you, you, you look at and go, man, that's just, that, that's just not right. Can you imagine what it would have been like to stoop down to this earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and take all of the weight of all of the sin that's ever occurred ever throughout humanity upon yourself and weigh it perfectly and justly? You're not going to get to heaven and you know, stand in there with the Lord and you walk up to Him. What did you do that for? You know, we think about God sometimes in human, in human characteristics, in human ways. God has never, Jesus has never, the Holy Spirit has never made a wrong assessment of anything. And everything that God has ever done throughout all of time is perfect. His ways are perfect and just and true you will never find cause to impeach him. Never. Those people whom you thought, well, maybe they should have gotten saved sooner, you're going to find out it was perfectly in God's time. Those people whom you uh, hung out with, that you're, oh, they'll never get saved. Anybody have those people in your life, they'll never get saved? And you're going to get to heaven, they're going to be in line ahead of you? (laughs) Oops. Oops. Kind of biffed that one. (laughs) Purity. Absolute gleaming virgin snow with a crown of glory on his head. A prince comes, John 14 says, and he has nothing. No one has anything on God. Perfect. The fourth thing, he's the undeceivable one. Anybody in here ever get deceived by anybody? If you're a woman and you have a husband, the answer is yes. <laughs> Men are liars, ladies. Every one of us was a football star, right? Every one of us, you know, we've climbed every mountain, forded every stream. Of course, I'm kidding. But there's things about our character that certainly, certainly, we're deceivable. You can see it in the garden. Wasn't me, Lord. It's the first wasn't me ever in human history. I didn't do it. And they're pointing, they were pointing at each other, weren't they? It was him. It was him. It was her. It was her. Eve got deceived and Adam lies about it. So he's a deceiver too. Not the Lord. He's, you're never going to find something. Well, man, he sure pulled the wool over me on that one. It's not going to happen. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. It's showing that, that absolute ability. He has to burn through all the dross, all the junk in this world. We look at our lives and we think we have it all you know, just worked out. And the Lord sees through every last one of our plans. You know, it's really, I've actually had people that have come into my office for counseling, and it's almost like they believe in holy lying. No, seriously. You know, and they'll begin a story, and it's just like, well, I had to tell them this because, and you know, they just go through their shenanigans of, well, this is why, and we call that justification of sin. And they'll, well, you know, but I couldn't tell them the truth on my application or, you know, when I was doing my taxes, I mean, you know the government's trying to rip us off. (laughs) God doesn't buy our stories. He's the undeceivable one. Verse 15, his feet were like brass, refined as of the fire of a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. He's completely undeterrable. Nothing is going to put him off. Nothing's going to stop him. He's not going to all of a sudden, well, boy, I didn't see that coming. I sure wish I'd have known about that from all eternity. God's not in a hurry. He's not lacking resources. He's taking his time. Remember, as we saw on Sunday, Jesus delayed coming to Mary and Martha and Lazarus on purpose. He is perfectly on time. He's not behind the time. He's not ahead of the time. Where he's going, he's going because he's perfect in getting there. And so this picture, fine brass, and it was a picture at that point in time that when you looked at that picture, you would just see perfection. You could look back in those finely polished feet of brass and you would absolutely say, that's what I would have done. If I had decided my own will for me, that's how I would have accomplished it. So very often we look at the Lord like he's got, you know, 45 different plans and every once in a while he just picks one and he gives it to us. No, he has a perfect plan. Can you imagine when he got to the tomb of Lazarus and, and, you know, Jesus is standing there scratching his head, why am I here? Oh, that's right. I came here for a purpose. And I got here right on time, according to my time. It was a few days late for you, Mary and Martha, but it's perfect for me. Not too distant from that giant cauldron with the brazen altar that stood in the courtyard of the temple. You can imagine Jesus walked by it in his polished brass and he just... He looks at it. This is what I came for. I came to give my life a ransom for many. Nothing could have stopped me. That's why Isaiah said that Jesus, speaking of the Messiah, some nearly 700 years ahead of time, he said he set his face like flint on Jerusalem. Couldn't stop him. A sixth thing, and notice this. He's the unanswerable one. The sound of many waters. Interesting, if you travel to South America, you specifically go to the the country of Brazil. Just a beautiful place. One of the seven natural wonders of the world is a place called Iquazu Falls. And when you go there, there's a trail that goes down to the base of the falls. It's actually the largest cumulative total set of waterfalls in the world. But there's a, there's a place that it goes down to, uh, at, the, at the very base, there's a little viewing area, and it's called actually the Devil's Throat. 
And all this water is put some six billion gallons of water an hour goes over that spot. But as you're traveling down there, interestingly enough, there's little plaques on there and they're scripture. And it happens to be this psalm that the Lord's voice is like the sound of many waters. And when you get down there, you understand exactly what the psalmist David was saying and what's being repeated here to the Apostle John. That sound of many waters drowns out everything. You can hear nothing but the rush of that water. You can be this close to somebody else's face and be talking and they cannot hear you because the sound of many waters has taken over. You're not going to answer back. You're not going to tell him. Niagara Falls, very much the same thing. 12 million cubic feet a minute goes over Niagara Falls. When that's happening, you're not going to answer back. You're not going to sit down there and you know, do the, the echo like you can in the Grand Canyon. Nothing's coming back. It's getting absorbed by the sound of many waters. That's the voice of the Lord. And one day that voice, the sound of many waters, is going to break the silence of this world. And that shout is going to be, come on up, time's done. A seventh thing is the unparalleled one. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand the seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. It's a picture here. Those stars are obviously the angels of the seven churches. We're going to find that out in verse 20. But this symbolism just shows his control over everything. He controls the church. He controls pastors. He's the one that's the Lord over all. There is one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. That's exactly what Paul's going to tell us in the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. There's exactly one, and it's him. And so in that sense, nobody is his equal. That's why when people talk about world religions, I want to encourage you, if you have time and you can come and take cults and world religions you're going to find out that is the difference between biblical Christianity and all of the world's religions. Because we literally believe that Jesus Christ is God. There is none like Him. He's one of one, exactly as the book of Colossians declares for us. He's one of one. And He Himself is unparalleled. He's unequaled in that sense. He holds the forces of the world in his right hand. He has all power. Natural power, supernatural power. Nobody has anything over the Lord. So it's always been so amazing to me about the stories of the Gospels as you read them. And as you look at who is standing before Pontius Pilate. Who was standing before Pontius Pilate was not Jesus of Nazareth, the man, alone, It was Jesus of Nazareth, also God's only Son. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally all of the power of God contained in the voice, in the hands, in the legs, in the feet, in the knowledge of Jesus. And yet he restrained himself. You ever thought about what you would have done in the garden? You ever thought about what you would have done when Judas came and he was going to betray you with a kiss? Have you ever thought about what would have happened when they stretched Jesus out on the cross? What you would have done were those your hands. 
He had the power to shoot those nails back like they were thunderbolts right through the forehead of whoever was putting them in his hand. And yet he restrained that power and said, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He is absolutely unparalleled. The eighth thing, he's the unconquerable one. Notice what it says in the second half of verse 16. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That sword, of course, is is the word of God. And the word of God does divide between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It's capable of all things. You know, sometimes we, we relegate the word of God almost to fairy tale. Even Christians do that. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's a nice story, but. And I can tell you how that happens very often. It's when we start to cave into the world's way. Well, yeah, I, I know I'm not supposed to. I know, you know, Romans chapter 1, yeah, it says what it says, but it doesn't actually apply to me. I, I know that I'm not supposed to be bitter and mean-spirited and angry, but you, you just have never met my spouse. He absolutely is the unconquerable one. And what he says is truth 100% of the time. The world sprang into existence. Space became filled with planets and galaxies because of his word. Did you ever think of that? And yet we're like, well, you know, I don't know if the Lord can take care of my financial situation. You see what he's saying? We kind of have a small God sometimes, don't we? Are, are we really praying to the unconquerable one? Are we really believing that Jesus is who he says he is? Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, hath God said, or God said, God spoke and it became. He spoke forth the world that you now Right around on at 22,000 miles an hour. Kind of messes with your head when you think about it, doesn't it? You're spending at 22,000 miles an hour right now. And yet somehow we all stay here. That there's exactly 7.62 pounds of gravitational force on your body. If it was any more, it would crush you any less, and your blood wouldn't stay in your veins. He's the unconquerable one. The word went forth to replenish the earth by the word of God. God spoke and it was. And by the way, he didn't speak into previously created things. He spoke it out of nothing. So when someone says, well, you know, I believe in the Big Bang. I do too. God spoke and it was. Bang. He's the creator. He's the comforter. He's all those things. Last of all in these things, he's the unapproachable one. His countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. Now, Now we don't think of these things this way. But his countenance, the very countenance of God. When we say someone has a a joyful countenance, 
You know, like when you ladies are, are you're getting ready to have children and your face just changes. I don't know what it is. You look happy. They call it that maternity glow, you know, when you get that. Guys don't get it. We get gray hair instead. I don't know how that works, but it just does. But the Lord's countenance, His glow, His shine, if you will, is like that of the sun. But he is so majestic on one hand, and yet so approachable uh, in, in that sense, in a human sense. Remember, little children came to him, but the fullness of him we cannot know. If he had ever borne his full glory while he was here on this earth, everyone who saw him would have died instantaneously. That's why the high priest wore that scarlet cord around their ankle. It's the reason when you look at the high priest's garments, they're on the hem, the second level. There's a row of little bells that are shaped like pomegranates. They were there so that if they went in and they had not offered the proper sacrifice and they went in with one silly sin into the presence of God, they would have died like that. And so when the bells stopped tingling, they would know to grab the other end of the cord and pull his dead carcass out of there. That's how unapproachable God was until Jesus said it is finished. And now by the blood of the Lamb we can enter in, amen? You see, but he is still holy. And he still dwells in an unapproachable light. If you were to go today... To heaven in your mortal body, boom, gone, just like that, vaporized. We don't think of it, but our, our sun loses somewhere around 4.2 million tons of its mass every second from heat. If you take 10 pounds of fissile material, the things that we make atomic weapons out of, and you instantaneously turn it into energy. It can melt 25 million tons of rock into lava. And yet, he is light in its purest form. Pure energy, if you want to look at it that way. He is absolutely majestic in his power. And yet, he put that off to come to this earth to walk with us. So as John's hearing this and he turns around to see it, he doesn't get to see the fullness of it. A third and final thing as we wrap this up tonight. The last couple of verses in our passage. It's an age of intelligent and persistent waiting. Think about it for a second. Pastor Kevin was speaking of it. The disciples, when Jesus left... Hey, where are you going, Lord? Remember that? Well, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, yes, you do. You know where I'm going. I'm going to my Father's house. And in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Remember, he actually told them that. And they're like, duh. You have to love the disciples. Because if you'd have been there, you'd be just as thick-headed. And so it gives us hope. Yeah, amen? That's why I love the disciples. I look at the disciples, there's hope for me. If Peter could be an apostle, there's hope for me. Then I realize I'm, not, I'm just like him. 
Verse 19, write these things which you have seen. And I want you to see a couple of things as we wrap up tonight. Write the things which are and write the things which will take place after this. This is the outline of the entire book. So the remainder of the book and what has already come to us in chapter 1 is contained here in this one verse. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. And be careful, that word angels there simply means messenger. It means herald, it means voice. It does not exclusively mean an angelic being. It means one who brings the message of someone else. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Notice that. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So we have here a perfect example of Scripture interpreting itself. It tells us who these things are. And so as we have said from the beginning, lots of symbols in the book of Revelation. And they're there because it preserves the text. They're able to be interpreted and understood in any language, any tongue, at any time. And so it is an age of intelligence. The church age is an age of intelligent waiting for the Lord to reveal himself throughout time. And he's been doing that since day one. Many of these things that are written in the book of Revelation were absolutely unknowable at that time. And so as the Lord has revealed these things, we now sit here some 2,000 years later with a much greater understanding of the world that we live in. A much greater understanding of the things that the church has already been through. Amen? And so as we get to the seven churches, we're going to see some things that, oh, wow, the church at Laodicea, that's existed for quite a while. It's very pertinent today, but it's been in the world forever, ever since the founding of the church. There's always been a lukewarm church somewhere. Amen? And so he's beginning to reveal these things to us. But here we have this one verse that gives us really an outline of the entire book. And as we close up tonight, as we look at this, look, the, the Lord's return is always imminent. Amen? And so we have an outline here that, that reminds us. And there are three things here. And those three things are what you've seen. And so what John had seen has already been described to us in chapter 1. He, he's hearing this voice. He's seeing this vision. He's receiving these things from the Lord. John, write those things down. Chapter 1 is the things that he had seen. What we already know, what we've already discovered. That as we're waiting on the Lord, we get a view of things to come. And he says, so write what is now, or what is those things which are. And so chapters 2 and 3, the churches, the history of the church, from the day of Pentecost until the very last day before the Lord takes his church home in the rapture, is the whole context of the next couple of chapters. It describes the church in the world as we know it, and as it has always been. And so these seven churches are pictures of those things which have been persistent throughout time, particular to the time in which the things were written, and absolutely peculiar to the ones written too. And so we'll see those things as we go through these seven churches. But he says, write the things which you've seen. I want you to notice, now look back on chapter 1 and see how much of it was written in the past tense. 
Because there are things that John already saw. Chapters 2 and 3, the events that pertain to the church age. Selected and written down here, not because it's the entire history of the church, but it's indicative of the entire church age. And so we're going to see there's always been a persecuted church. There's always been a faithless church. There's always been an aberrant church. There's always been a religious church. There, there have always been churches that just didn't get what the first love was. Amen? And so he's saying, write these things which are now. And he's speaking about now from then until the end of the church age. Everything that's ever going to happen within the church itself. And then he goes on and says those things which will take place after this. After what? After the church age. After this. He says, when you write the things that are, and you write the things that are going to take place next, then I want you to write chapters 4 to 22 are the things that are taking place after the church has gone home. So they are completely still, today, future. How future they are, we don't actually know. Might be tonight. If you hear a loud trumpet, you won't need your bags. For the dead in Christ will raise, and we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air. Amen? Might be tonight. Amen? So you can get really excited about understanding what's coming. Because what it does is it gives us a picture of why it's so important that the church get busy about our Father's business. Because time has always, family of God, time has always been short. The only difference is, 2,000 years later, it's a lot shorter than it was 2,000 years ago. You see, the church age... We're at the church of Laodicea. There's always been a persecuted church. Part of the church is persecuted today. But that church was faithful. Now we have a faithless church. And I'm not talking about this one. I'm talking about the church in the world. A church that denies the word of God. A church that denies salvation in Christ Jesus. A church that's so worried about being culturally relevant and tolerant of everyone and everything that Jesus is no longer the way, the truth, and the life, and he is no longer the only way whereby any name and whereby anyone will be saved. You see, now you can look at the church age and go, wow. That will be the context of chapters 4 to 22. Why is it divided that way? Because it gives us the church age, it gives us from the rapture to the second coming, and then it gives the millennium and beyond. And so we get a picture of what God's going to do for the rest of the time that the earth exists, because at the end of this book there is a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? So when people look at, well, you know, I just, I just believe that You know, one of these days, we're going to have to pay the price for all the things we're doing to Mother Earth. Well, number one, there's no Mother Earth. If Earth is your mama, we got problems. 
Amen? We, we got serious issues. Now, the only thing I can tell you is you are dirt. So we're made out of the dust of the earth, that's for sure. But you were created by an ever-loving God who created you in His image so that you might have fellowship and worship Him. There is a purpose for humankind. It's not so we can save dolphins and whales. And by the way, I believe that we should do everything that we can to preserve ocean life and take care of our forests and all those kind of things. God's only given us one planet to live on, amen? That's a good thing. But saving the earth isn't going to save mankind. Saving souls saved mankind. Amen? We're going to see that as we push forward. And so verse 20, we're going to see throughout this book the glory of his person, the, the wonder of the churches, the ministry to it, the sovereign acts that he has to, to come that will culminate in, in Paul's admonition to Israel that one day all Israel will be saved. That hasn't happened yet, amen? You're going to get a chance to see that if you travel with us to Israel. All Israel has not become believers in Christ. But one day they will. They'll mourn the one whom they pierced. They'll see Messiah for who he is. It's coming. The mystery. You see, the Lord has put his voice in this world. That's why the, those of us who stand in the pulpit, every pulpit, in every church, rightly proclaiming the word of truth, we have an obligation to speak forth the message that we've been given, not make one up for our own liking. That's why the culturally relevant church, the church that just simply throws out the word of God and substitutes you know, some new message, is not of God. There's bad news. Bad news is for all of sin come short of the glory of God. Amen? And there's good news. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. That's the message of the church. The message of the church is not to find a, a, a cure for AIDS. As glorious as it would be to cure AIDS. Let me be really careful here. I wish we did have a cure for AIDS. But the problem is not AIDS. The problem is human hearts. The, the problem is not what we've done to the planet. It's what we've done without Jesus. The solution is found in this book. Seven stars, the seven lampstands. If the church had been doing its job from then till now, we would not be in the place that we're in. Amen? Amen? I believe that with my whole heart. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, it's just the government. It's not the government. Revival, repentance, reconciliation, restoration begins in the house of the Lord. That's where it begins. And if the church takes up that cause seriously, then this mystery that appears to be the book of Revelation is rather easily solved. We are to be a church that waits. We are to be a church that teaches the word. We are to be a church that witnesses. Because if we do that, then we're hastening the coming of the Lord. Amen? 
That's what we want to do. We want to hasten the coming of the Lord. And what that means is people come to know Jesus. As they come to know Jesus, the Lord's going to finally say, look, it's it. That's the last one. It's time to go home. People have asked me sometimes, you know, how come the Lord doesn't come? Because we haven't done our job. We haven't done our job. It's time for us to get up, get out, get busy. Amen? You see, the seven churches of the church age, the age of grace, have been around forever. All 2,000 years. The lampstands have been there. And you're going to see as we go through the seven churches that the Lord says, look, you don't do what I want you to do. I'll remove your lampstand. I'll take that church out. A lot of empty churches. Kids are leaving the church left and right. One of the reasons we want to focus on our young people in this church is children are leaving the church in droves. That shouldn't happen because Jesus is still Lord and he is still the only way of salvation. I pray that we study it. I pray that we witness to its power. I pray that we worship his wondrous, wonderful name. And as we do that, yep, we're going to have to wait a while. But the more we do those things, the shorter that wait's going to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the power of the name of Jesus. Lord, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, our Father God. We can't wait for that day, but Lord, you have called us here to be busy about your business. And Lord, we have neighbors that don't know you. We have family that have yet to commit their lives to you. Lord, we've not done all to stand, and so God, we ask you to just light a fire underneath us, Lord. Help us to be busy about our Father's business in these last days. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, thanks for revealing yourself to us uh, in this book. Lord, may it cause a, a new work in us. Lord, we get excited about every day. Lord, could every day just be that time when we wake up and say, Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We bless your name. We thank you, Lord. Touch those who tonight perhaps have come and these things are strange to them. Lord, show them your truth. Cause them to know you and the power of your resurrection. Bless us as we leave, we ask in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen, amen and Amen.